Welcome to the Reverberations podcast. This series is curated and hosted by me, Zara Arshad, and made possible with funding and support generously provided by the Design History Society UK. Reverberations as an initiative was originally proposed in late 2018 as an events programme, a set of in-person conversations that would seek to address marginalisation, underrepresentation, and erasure in the UK's cultural and creative sectors. This group of talks was partly driven by my own harmful experiences of the fields in which I professionally practice, specifically museums, academia and design. While the podcast that you are currently listening to, a reincarnation of the aforementioned events programme, was developed throughout 2020, a year defined by COVID-19, the murder of George Floyd, and the subsequent heightened energy of the important Black Lives Matter campaign, in addition to new surges in anti-Asian hate. As these happenings and more have been taking place around me, I have doubted the value of public discussion, querying how can we move beyond lip service and help to enact meaningful change. The exchanges that I have had mostly during lockdown with the brilliant group of individuals who feature in this series offer glimpses into the possibilities and imaginings of how such change might be achieved, such as through collectively creating new systems, building networks of care and empathy, and thinking more carefully about whose voices we choose to amplify. The works, ideas and approaches briefly encapsulated here have greatly informed my own thinking. I hope these recordings will be similarly useful for you. Organised around three key themes, institutions, divergent models, and decolonising design and culture, season one of the podcast broadly focuses on history making, particularly in relation to design history and design studies. The conversations that feature implicitly reflect on how and where our histories have conventionally been told and who gets to tell them through considering the work and experiences of BIPOC peers and colleagues who have navigated, continue to navigate, and frequently resist institutional structures and frameworks in varying ways. Our next speaker is Debica Ray, a writer and editor specializing in arts, culture, cities, and society. Debica has a wide ranging portfolio. She has contributed to numerous leading magazines and newspapers, including Wallpaper, Icon, Architectural Digest, Guardian, The Independent and Al Jazeera, and is currently contributing editor for the UK Crafts Council's Crafts Magazine. Debica also has a keen interest in the global South and diasporic communities, as reflected in Clove, the magazine of South Asian culture that she founded in 2017. So welcome, Devika. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. Um, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for inviting me. So Devika, I mean, you have more than 15 years of experience as a journalist, so a really rich portfolio of work. And much of your work has focused on the arts, design and culture, as I mentioned in, in the introduction. Though you yourself don't necessarily identify or consider yourself to be a design researcher, From my perspective, I do see overlaps between the work of, for example, a contemporary design historian, which is how I would describe myself, and with design journalism. What would you say in response to that? Like, what's your take on that? 
Well, in some ways, of course, journalism is a form of qualitative research insofar as you're gathering information, analysing it and then publishing your findings. And that's true whether it's reporting on design or politics or film or travel or, or any patch, really. Um, the key difference, I suppose, is the level of rigour that journalists bring to the research because of the nature and speed of publishing, journalists rarely have time to dive into things in the depth that academic researchers like you do. And sadly, that's even more true nowadays with the demands of 24-hour journalism and online publishing and the financial pressures that a lot of publications are under and have had to make budget cuts and staff cuts because their funding models are increasingly unviable. Another major difference is that journalism is inherently subjective. And I'm sure academic research is obviously subjective as well in its own ways, but uh, journalism is guided very much by the journalist's worldview and the demands of the audience that's reading what you write. So, for example, obviously, I see myself when I go into, into an interview or start researching a piece, I know that it's my job to find out the facts and then assess them fairly. For example, when I interview a designer or I write about uh, a new development or analyze some kind of design trend, but Ultimately, it's really subjective because it relies on my personal view and my world experience. And that's something that you can't remove from the process. I'm filtering the facts through my own personal lens and I'm deciding to tell the reader a story or a narrative that makes sense to me. And I'm selecting facts. I'm deciding what's relevant and what I choose. And also in selecting the subject matter itself as an editor, that's another kind of filter that, that's shaped by who's making those decisions. For example, I wrote a feature recently about uh, monuments in the public realm. It was in response to some of the debates that are happening at the moment about statues and representations. Mm -hmm. And that's inherently a subject that's loaded with political viewpoints on all sides. And I can't approach that subject without being part of the story myself. And then editing is nothing like a peer review. It's, again, subject to the editor's viewpoint as it goes through that process. And we don't have the obligations to be transparent about sources in the same way as academic researchers do. So in some ways, as, as much as I see a journalist as being a researcher, we're also perhaps part of the design story in the sense that we're creating these sources of information that maybe someone like you looks at in the future and then views as a snapshot of the moment and takes perhaps with a pinch of salt. Another overlap that I see within both of our practices, and you've touched on it already, is interview-based practice. So interviewing as a journalist, for instance, you know, through Clove, for example, you have interviewed a number of design practitioners, architects working in and around the South Asian region versus, for example, oral history interviewing, which um, is often used by researchers, or at least I've used this methodology to incorporate and to recover and to include marginalized voices, in my case, in design history. So could you speak more about how you go about preparing for an interview? What is the process like for you? You know, you've kind of already mentioned the time constraints, but how do you go about preparing for that and then delivering on that story? So I suppose one thing to say is that an interview is a very different beast depending on who you're doing it for you know so I might interview an architect for example but whether I interview them for a, a construction trade magazine or for a design publication like a, a design academic journal or 
a magazine that deals with lifestyle and cultural content will will be entirely different. And so the approach will obviously be different. Quite broadly, I suppose I try and go into these interviews without with having as little bias as possible while acknowledging that I have one. And so that usually entails understanding that person's work as broadly as possible and having all the facts about them and then trying to let the conversation flow naturally as much as possible. I suppose I see my role in that scenario as being a conversationalist and being engaging in a dialogue with the person as a representative of the reader. So you're asking the questions that a reader might want to know and you're allowing the conversation to to flow in the way that whoever, whether it's the reader of the construction trade magazine or the or the design publication might want, might engage in that debate. And I guess like good conversation, good journalism and good writing is always about debate and challenge and, and I suppose conflict in some sense. So you, I tend to narrow in on the subjects that I suppose are going to elicit the strongest opinion or provoke an emotional response. And often these are dictated by what I know about the person, but then obviously also shaped by my interests you know what interests me are Mm. social issues politics context and impact of design project or an architectural project and those are the the areas that I choose to interview people who if I can when I have a choice I choose to interview people who are interested in those subjects and then those are the the kind of flashpoints that are going to create the most interesting responses and I guess it comes back to you know, in the context of design history, I suppose it's useful for someone like you now or in the future to see these these pieces as kind of capturing the person in the context and looking at how they shape the world and how the world is shaping them and their practice. Yeah, I mean, that's it's a really interesting process that you've kind of outlined. But in terms of this agenda, like if if we can call it that, you know, being aware of what readers of a publication might want to find out more about or adapting your process according to the kind of publication that you're writing for, how does that kind of come about do you as a, I mean, you've had extensive experience already, I, I suppose, to some degree, it's almost now instinct that you will know this set of questions or this content will be more pertinent to our audience but how much is that shaped by your editors or your commissioners and how much do you think that is consciously or subconsciously shaped by you? It's a really good question I think that it's always a two-way street but I think that you know, before we even get to the point of me doing this interview, there is a whole process of how did I get to that position in the first place? You know, I'm working with editors who hopefully like what what I do, perhaps agree with my viewpoint and my take on things. I I think, you know, and obviously that's, that's a benefit when you're the writer who's chosen to do a commission, but then obviously it has negatives because editors work with writers who kind of reinforce their viewpoints a lot of the time. So, Instinct, yes, of course, you know, I understand the publications I work for, but there's also a reason I've ended up working for those people because my approach to things probably chime with them already to a certain extent. And of of course, a lot of it is experience. I've worked with most of the editors I've worked with for many years. Some of my editors I've worked with from the very beginning of my career. So I'm about 15 years now for for some of them. So uh, you do kind of develop a certain kind of rapport with people and they know what to expect from you and you know what they're looking for but again also it comes from being an editor myself as well I'm reading other people's writing extensively I understand I'm Mm -hmm. going taking a critical eye when reading 
the work of the journalists who write for the publications I edit for. So, you know, through that process, you get a sense of what works and what doesn't. And, and you know, from the other side, what is the objective of this piece? How does it fit into the rest of the publication? And what is, what's the aim? You know, that's a big question that journalists tend to ask themselves when they're writing. What is this piece about? Are we trying to hone in on a specific exhibition? Are we trying to analyze a project? Are we trying to get to know the work of this person better? And the purpose ultimately defines what you produce. And perhaps, and you can speak about this better than I can, but perhaps the design research from an academic point of view is possibly slightly reversed in the sense that you're letting what you find then eventually dictate the outcome. Um, but, you know, you were, you're talking about specific aims and directions, and I think that very nicely leads me actually to the next question that I wanted to ask you, which was specifically about Clove magazine, which you established in 2017. And this is described um, as a magazine of South Asian culture, a platform that explores the forces shaping this rapidly changing region so of South Asia and its relationship to the world from art, music, film, fashion, architecture, design and literature to social, political, technological and culinary movements. So a very broad but yet still rich approach. Can you tell us a bit more about why, how you decided to create Clove and what you hope to achieve through it at the time of creating it at its foundation? So I think for me, Clove was primarily a kind of provocation, I suppose, in the sense that I'd spent quite a few years working in cultural media and felt like the lens through which stories were being told were very uniform and homogenous. I'm thinking, you know, there's a lot of examples of it, but I'm thinking of the kind of stories where people are sent from the UK perhaps to, to a place that they had no, no idea about and don't really know and tell the story as if that is a virtue in a sense. You know, I'm an outsider, I don't understand the context and, and I'm, I'm bringing you a story from of having been kind of airlifted in there and I, I felt there were different ways of telling stories whereby you find people who really know their subject and find people locally embedded in a context who mm. um, tell stories differently so that is what I was trying to do with Clove and the cover line was for the launch print issue was shifting the lens which was proposing that we need to broaden the western centric focus of cultural journalism but also bring new perspectives to conversations about culture and I would say that I, I don't claim to have been entirely successful necessarily because I think it's a journey and a process and it, it's something that takes time to kind of establish that approach. And I don't think an independent publication on its own can bring about that kind of structural change. But I suppose what I was trying to do is propose what this is an intention that I think that we should aspire to. Um, and I hope it's contributed somewhat to moving that discussion along in some small way. We've continued online since the print publication for various reasons. And I think that the conversation since 2017 around this subject has changed a lot as well. You know, back in 2017, mm -hmm. a lot of these conversations had started, but the, the subject of decolonization, racism across the board, but in the cultural sphere as well, diversity, these, these have become mainstream topics. And, and, you know, they were already there at the time, but I think that we've made a lot of change since then and they're more ambitious and more transformational um, these conversations that we're having now so in that context I suppose I'm thinking about what Clove's role can and should be whether it carries on in the form that it is or whether it changes in some way and 
I don't necessarily have answers to that yet, but I do think that independent publications don't need to have a fixed agenda when they start out. I think they can evolve and they can change. And, you know, that sometimes they can just be about a moment. Sometimes they can carry on in different forms. For me, this was never about kind of running a business or dominating a conversation. And it's more about flowing with what's happening around it. Um, And I think hopefully uh, there's scope for doing something new and continuing into the future. Yeah, no, I think exactly that, like have this kind of independently driven initiative, not necessarily having an end point or a goal. I think I've seen that to be a common thread through a few of the conversations that I've had for this podcast. And I think it really is about bringing visibility to a topic, giving that topic the energy and the respect that it deserves, whilst also nurturing it, learning yourself, you know, as you say, it's a learning process as well, and just kind of evolving with that in a given moment in time. And I've certainly seen that also of myself and some of the work that I've done that has been independently driven. But as you were talking, there was something that you mentioned. So I kind of want to backtrack just a little from Clove before coming back to it later. You know, you mentioned this journalistic practice of being airlifted into another context and having to cover a story in an environment that might be new to you. But has has that been kind of a process that you yourself have had to go through? And what has that been like for you? And how do you kind of overcome some of the biases that you would bring as a journalist in that context? Uh, how do you just negotiate that whole process? I, I mean, absolutely. Yes, I've been in that position. I've been in that position many times. It's very much, it has been an a part of the cultural journalistic world or probably outside of the cultural world as well for as long as I've been involved in it and you can see why I mean for one reason because of the way things operate at the speed things operate at the moment we are very much reliant on stories being given to us often by PR firms and they pay for travel which is very appealing Mm. for journalists you know for obvious reasons not just because people enjoy a free trip somewhere but because people want to go and see something outside of their experience and I don't know whether that's going to change now we've come to a standstill for a year but we'll see what happens after that I mean in terms of my own approach to it yes I've been there so you know I'm not certainly not in a position to kind of condemn any journalist who would take a press (laughs) trip but it does make it has always made me uncomfortable because you are to a certain extent kind of beholden to telling a story that you've been asked to although you know you can try not to to a certain extent you, you don't really go in with the intention of slamming something that you're being invited to so from an editor's point of view I try very hard to change the way that these things happen by commissioning writers who understand the context and are local to a story um, as far as possible and and hopefully that's something that is happening more and I've seen it happen more actually in the cultural publications that I work for so I think that can only be a good thing and perhaps if after the pandemic we're all disinclined to travel for business as much as we did in the past that might happen increasingly which I think is to be welcomed. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely, of course, I agree with that. But I'm just kind of thinking about the challenges of getting to that point. I mean, you're obviously very well connected. So I guess there are two parts to the question that I want to ask. A, how did you build those connections to then be able to draw, you know, on this group of people that are embedded in the contexts that you want to cover within your stories? But then B, 
where does language fit in with this? Like when you want to kind of tap into a context and you might not necessarily either yourself or people that you work with have the linguistic knowledge to be able to negotiate that. Yeah. So how does that kind of factor in the work that you do? Well, I mean, obviously nowadays, social media and the existence of the internet has just made it very easy to find people. You know, it isn't that difficult to hone in on a writer or photographer in most places in the world. And usually from asking one person and asking around, you can find Mm. someone. But there are problems that underlie that as well. And I think primarily this issue of language that you've mentioned. English, lucky for us, publishers in the English language is widely enough spoken that you can usually find an English language writer, not always, but often people who can communicate in English well enough to write for your publications. But the problem is that you are, as an outsider, again, choosing a person without a whole depth of understanding of the context. And I think it's also dangerous to assume a sense of homogeneity within places as well. Just because someone is an English language writer in a context doesn't mean they understand somewhere. If you're trying to tell stories that are marginalised, it isn't necessarily the case that the writer that you've identified on social media has, they perhaps have a better better level of understanding and an opportunity to tell that story than you do from afar, or if you decided to travel there. But it is, I think, dangerous to make the assumption that they're necessarily representative of that context or that they, mm. they will be telling a story with no biases either. But then that's a problem that I have a few answers to really I think we can only do our best as editors and then it comes back to the original point that we discussed we're not objective researchers people are telling a story and you just need to make it very clear that the writer is very much a part of the story they're telling as much as the people they speak to. Yeah I mean I've been thinking a lot about language in relation to my research almost as an observer if you will So let me see if I can articulate this for the podcast. You know, there are certain craft and design practitioners in East Asia. So my work tends to focus on China, Taiwan, Hong Kong and Korea. But there are certain practitioners that are better represented in discourse, that have more visibility, partly because of their work, partly because they might be bilingual, partly because they're better at marketing themselves. And so these are the people that tend to get written about. I mean, hopefully that's now changing, but it's certainly been my experience in the past where I've seen, for instance, the same number of contemporary design practitioners from China being written about again and again in English language discourse. And so... I was just wondering what your take was on that. How do you break out of that pattern and start to recover the stories of people that might not necessarily speak English? So maybe that comes down to who you're commissioning to do the writing. But then that also comes back to stories of networks and who is available to that person. Yeah, so I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on that. Yeah, I mean, it's language, but it's also the language of presentation, you know, visual language as well. You know, we're, we're so reliant on images supplied by a designer, for example, in most publications because our budgets don't allow us to go and photograph things ourselves. So you're all, mm-hmm. all automatically excluding people who don't have the kind of means to put together a really swish set of imagery 
or perhaps don't have an understanding of the marketing process as much as the designers you do choose to focus on. And then again, as you say, the language matters as well. You simply often don't have time to find a translator to do an interview in a, a language that isn't English. In answer to how you break out of that, it's really difficult. I mean, we're living in this context that has built up for so long. I mean, you know, part of the answer is budgets, if we can work out how to better fund journalism, if we think it's important, um, if we think cultural journalism is important and we can find ways to fund it, then that gives people mm -hmm. more time to give better attention to finding the people who were not already featuring and then being able to give them the kind of presentation that they deserve and perhaps commissioning writers outside of the English language to then translate. I don't see budgets turning around anytime soon. So I guess it then comes down to um, trying to make some kind of individual effort as much as you can within the structure that we have. I don't know whether that's a satisfactory answer, but I'm afraid that's all I've got. Perhaps we can now bring the conversation back to Clove. In some ways, Clove has had to be more than a magazine. For example, alongside maintaining the print and digital platforms, which have already been mentioned, you have expanded into organizing talks and other forms of programming, such as for London Craft Week um, and London Design Festival. And of course, this approach is not necessarily exclusive to you or to Clove, but how do you see these events in relation to your writing practice? I think it's become practically obligatory for most journalists and editors to have several strands to their bow. So it doesn't seem to be sufficient to just be a writer anymore. You have to be able to host a talk or uh, give a presentation or curate an event, curate an exhibition even. Um, a lot of this is, again, back to the financial pressures of operating and making a print publication viable, which obviously isn't ideal. It wasn't really about that necessarily for Clove, which was always kind of operating on a shoestring anyway. So the financial pressures were less of an issue. It was more of that, my intention of, to kind of get a message out to as many people as possible. When I say message, I don't mean to sound evangelical about it, but I mean, it was about communicating widely and I wasn't necessarily tied to a particular format, you know? And, I, and I, on a personal level, I'm not tied to print or even writing necessarily as much as I love magazines and I love um, the written word I'm quite flexible and open about what mediums we use and I think it's a great thing that we can dip in and out of a variety of things and use different formats and platforms to communicate messages and generate a conversation as long as the conversation is happening and certainly mm -hmm. I have less interest in communicating to just a handful of people just for the sake of maintaining integrity in print. But of course, print is still important and you should all go and buy magazines immediately. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I think also, you know, everything comes with its own own set of issues as well. There's this kind of proliferation, I think, of events. There's a danger of it becoming formulaic or potentially shallow. You know, we've got wonderful talks and then occasionally they do become platforms for someone to promote something. Or mm. I think they're often not hosted or chaired by journalists, which can be great because you're getting perspectives from people who maybe have expertise in their field. But then journalistic questioning has a slightly different approach that I think is valuable. And so if you remove the journalist, is that a problem? Maybe it's not a problem. I think, you know, also there's value in 
giving people a, a platform to speak for themselves and communicate their own messages. But again, these events are subject to the same process of selection as magazines selecting people to interview. You know, we're it's the same networks, the same decision makers, and the same dangers of excluding marginalized people exist on that level, just as it does in print. But then I think also, aside from all of that, I think these platforms it's not just about talking about culture, reporting on culture, they are culture in themselves, in a sense, you know, the meeting people, discussing things, finding out about people's work and encountering new work is as much part of culture as it is, you know, to read something in a magazine or see something in an exhibition. So I think it's important to, even if ephemeral, but not so ephemeral anymore, now that, uh, now that we have Zoom and everything is being recorded. It's great that you can communicate with people on Zoom who you already already know, but is it reinforcing the kind of tendency to people for people to hire who they know or offer work to who they know or network with who they know when everything has to be arranged and you can't bump into someone in an exhibition space or you can't go to talk and have, start up a conversation? No, definitely. Speaking of organizing, <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about the practicalities you know of some of the work that you've been involved in particularly thinking about clove you know you've had to keep this magazine going you've had to maintain this alongside taking on other roles and writing commissions so for instance you're currently working at the crafts council how do you keep something like this going I mean you've already kind of mentioned you know the financial aspects of it to some degree but how and where do you even go about sourcing that funding on the one hand, but I'm also thinking of this in relation to contributing enough time and energy to an initiative like this. Like, how do you keep that side of it going without burning out, for example? Well, Clove, we only published one print edition and it's been um, rolling online since then. And, it, and it's something that isn't massively resource intensive. So without the kind of financial pressures of print or the time pressures of online, which we do in a relatively kind of informal and ad hoc way at the moment, that removes a lot of the pressure. And I, and I think I was always quite open-minded about the extent to which that would dominate my time. I mean, in terms of funding, I've, I've seen it as interchangeable, um, my professional work on a personal level and clove kind of cross-pollinate each other. And it takes as much time as it needs. You know, if my professional work needs more time, then Clove doesn't get time. And it, that's simply just the way it is. And on, honestly, I haven't really spent a lot of time chasing funding for it recently, which is why it's slowed down to a certain extent. But I think that's OK. I think we have this tendency to draw a strict line between the personal and professional. And I really think that that's impossible and it's damaging. You know, we can't separate the two. The expectation that your career and your the work that you do should be your identity and it should be there should be some kind of illusion of perfection that it, it never gets interrupted by the demands of having to pay a mortgage or take on work and, and just put the things that you enjoy slightly on hold. I think it's unrealistic. And, and I think it assumes that everyone has endless resources and privileges and you know, challenges and, and personal responsibilities to devote. And, and I think that's the cultural sector does operate in that way and it, and it really shouldn't because it just means that the people who can devote time to it are the ones who are lucky enough to have, have right, that time right, right. and the resources. So I'm not going to make a secret out of it being something that can only exist as much as, I, as I'm able to nurture it. 
And at the same time, I think that this idea of challenging narratives, it isn't, it shouldn't be a, a personal job. It's not a, my job on my own, you know, and it's not something I can do on my own either. So structural changes happen when everything changes and, and Clove alone or me kind of having these conversations is just a tiny part of a bigger picture and bigger picture change comes when also we admit that people are people and personal and professional can't be just separated in that clear way. So in previous conversations that we've had, both personally and in relation to preparing for this podcast, we've spoken about the challenges of tackling underrepresentation within the field of design. Um, And perhaps we can also broaden that out to the cultural and creative sectors more broadly. Can you speak about some of these challenges that you've encountered specifically in relation to the work that you do? So I think there's there's numerous things that I could say on that subject, but for me, fundamentally, it comes back a lot to this idea that we've discussed a few times of the conversation about subjectivity, because the cultural narrative is shaped by the people who write and who edit and who commission and who curate and organise. The problem in the past was this assumption of homogeneity in that there's only one perspective or rather one correct perspective that simply can't be true when it comes to something like art or design or culture. Uh, That's why I believe it's important to have a diversity of perspectives and lines of thought in the media, in journalism, who writes matters, as does who commissions, who edits. But I think it's just not enough just to change the who of journalism, but also what we're doing. For example, we still, in cultural journalism, tend to elevate the creative individual or the lone genius at the centre of a story. Um, Mm. And rarely do we recognise that cultural stories are always within a wider context and a wider picture. And I think that that shift in emphasis, I think, could go a long way to making us think differently about these stories and bringing in new voices and and tackling underrepresentation. Oh, definitely. I think... You know, approaching our work with this this idea of pluralisms, definitely I align with that in my own research practice. When we speak of histories, whose history are we speaking of? And of course, those perspectives change according to whose voices you incorporate into what you write about, as well as you know, what you've kind of mentioned in relation to acknowledging the networks that enable something to come to be if we're talking about a designer creating something or what also around that designer enabled that thing to be made um, and in what context, what were the context that helped to shape or inform that. So all of these things are actually also really pertinent to research and academic scholarship. And I think that's actually a really nice moment to maybe wrap the conversation up. Thank you so much for your time, Debeka. I think this has been a really insightful conversation and just want to thank you for your thoughts, um, your contribution, your energy. And yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time out to speak with us today. Thank you for asking. It was lovely to chat. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform it is that you use to access your podcasts. This will help other listeners to find us. With special thanks to Davinia Gregory, Ellie Michaela Young, and Mega Rajguru for their continued support and guidance. Jenna Alsop 
for editing season one of the Reverberations podcast, and Claire O'Mahony, Chair of the UK Design History Society, for championing this work.